You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. Hey, good morning. We are in the book of Ruth. This is our third and final week uh, going through this important Old Testament book uh, that helps us see God's story all the more clear and help us have a confidence in his sovereignty and his plan and his love for us and the way he's working out all things uh, to redeem a people for himself so he receives the ultimate glory. Uh, we're going to the moon on December 4th, which is one of our favorite traditions uh, here as a church, 3, 5, or 7. I'm really looking forward to that. I hope you are too. Uh, please be praying for that service. It's a great opportunity uh, to let people who already celebrate Christmas one way or another actually know the real reason behind it. And I don't just mean some kind of like slogan like Jesus is the reason for the season. I don't mean that, but actually to see God's love for them in Christ and how Christmas is the grand story of that becoming a reality. Uh, so I hope we can make plans to be there that afternoon. We will not be meeting here on December 4th that morning. I will be going to the moon at 3, 5, and 7. So I'm going to pray for us and uh, then we'll jump in. It's crazy how fast Christmas comes, doesn't it? I mean, it comes really quick, faster than uh, Vanderbilt came to Florida yesterday against Gators, so that's that. So let's pray together. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your love for us, and we're thankful how the book of Ruth helps tell that story. And I ask that we hear about today from the scriptures, how we make sense of it will help us be more pointed to who you are and what you've done for us in Christ. So as you speak through me as I present this this morning, and I ask you to be all the churches in our city as they gather, that you keep the enemy out of this place, out of our city. We know the scriptures tell us that our enemy is on the prowl, seeking to devour his prey, but we know that in Jesus that can completely be prevented. So we ask uh, just for your grace and that you are with us, and I ask you bless this time in Jesus' name, amen. So the book of Judges is really important to understand the book of Ruth, because Judges and Ruth are going on at the exact same time in the timeline, the chronology of the Bible. So a quick review uh, from last couple weeks. Uh, if you weren't here, I'd love for you to catch up by listening online on iTunes or our website, wherever you uh, listen to podcasts. And Judges 21, verse 25, the last verse of the book, we're told this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did whatever seemed right to him. Just one book of the Bible before. God had brought his people into the land. They're worshiping God. They're not perfect, but they're giving thanks to the Lord. They're not worshiping false gods. And here we are the next book later. Just a few turns of the Bible. Another generation has come, and we're told that now the culture, now the atmosphere, now the climate in the area is everyone's doing whatever they want. God, no thanks. I want what you have for me. I want what I have for me. How interesting that times haven't really changed that much, have they? People doing whatever's right in their own eyes. But at the same time, we see the book of Ruth happening. And out of the gate in the book of Ruth, we're told that in the times of the judges, as in during this time of cultural chaos, false god worship, there's something else that God is doing. And we're told this about Ruth, that she tells her mother-in-law, Naomi, who had already lost her husband and her sons, and they had left their land and their homeland, Naomi had, to go to another place because they needed a harvest, and there was a famine in the land. And one of her daughter-in-laws decided when they heard that the harvest had come back, that the barley was there again, they were going to return to the land. One of her daughter-in-laws said, no, I want to stay here in Moab. I want to stand in this place with their gods and my family here. But Ruth said this, wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and this amazing declaration, and your God will be my God. We call it an axis-altering event. 
a life-changing moment for Ruth personally and for all of history that she proclaimed those words, your God will be my God. And the reality is it's an altering move for you as well. When you declare those words that your God, that God, you will be my God, it's a life-changing declaration. It changes the course of your history. Now who you follow, who you believe is ultimate, your purpose for living, who you believe is in control, your God will be my God. So they get back into the land, and then we're introduced to someone that's known as a kinsman redeemer named Boaz. I'm going to read you what we read last week about that. In Leviticus chapter 25, an Israelite man's death in which he fails to leave behind a son, the brother of the deceased man is commanded to take his widow as his wife. Some of you are like, roll tide, roll tide. And both redeem the land and provide a son to carry on the deceased father's name. What's happening here is God's grace. God making a clear path to protect vulnerable widows. This also included family property. So what happens is that Ruth makes the appeal to Boaz. She's out in his field. He comes and shows kindness to her, and she makes an appeal for him to be her kinsman redeemer. And here's what Boaz says. Yes, it is true that I am a family redeemer. There's a redeemer closer than I am, as in there's someone else in the order. There's somebody else who kind of comes before me in the pecking order of lineage here. And so she says, I got to check with that person first. Stay here tonight. And in the morning, if he wants to redeem you, that's good. Let him redeem you. But if he doesn't want to redeem you as the Lord lives, I will. Now lie down until the morning. He showed integrity and character here. But there's somebody else. Let me check with him first to see if he's willing to fulfill his duty as the next in line kinsman redeemer. But if not, I certainly will do that. And this is really a story of Boaz's kindness in the life of Ruth. Rachel Stark writes this. When Boaz learns a woman who's both a widow and also a foreigner has found her way into his fields, he provides for her physical needs in both word and deed. He offers her water and invites her to eat with him and his servants. Boaz goes above and beyond God's laws that permit the poor to glean from his fields. He ensures Ruth will bring home grain to feed her and Naomi for weeks, not just days. Here is Boaz providing and kindness for the needs of Ruth and Naomi. Now what Boaz does for us is he's a visible portrait of the invisible reality of how God provides for our greatest needs. And our greatest needs we have ultimately are spiritual needs. And that God is the one who provides those ultimately for us in his kindness. So Boaz, being the kinsman redeemer of Ruth, is a living example to remind us and point us back to things like God's redemption, of Israel, where Moses would go in with Aaron and, and he, God would allow him to free his people by Pharaoh from Egypt out of slavery. Also, it points us to the redemption of God's people in Babylon. How they would leave captivity, be rescued, and taken to a new land. But ultimately, this story, it points us forward to the redemption of God's people, past, present, future, from our sin, our ultimate need, through Jesus Christ, who acted as the final kinsman redeemer on the cross and we'll see the full realization of that one day through his second coming when he returns for his church when the groom and his bride are together once and for all so we see this take place Boaz in chapter 4 he took Ruth and she became his wife he slept with her and the Lord granted conception to her and she gave birth to a son 
You might go, well, that's, you know, whatever. That's kind of what happens. That's kind of how it works, right? It may not seem very significant in the story, but we see this detail is here because the entire big understanding of what God is doing is going to be understood in this child that came from Boaz and Ruth. And they want Naomi, who felt that God had forgotten about her, that she had no lineage, her husband had died, her sons had died, there was no one to carry on her family name, so they present the baby to Naomi. And the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you without a family redeemer today. May his name become well known in Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. Indeed, your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Naomi took the child, placed him on her lap, and became a mother to him. The neighbor women said, a son has been born Naomi, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, don't lose sight of that significance. This Christmas is coming up really quickly, like I said. We're celebrating, without even maybe realizing it, the story of Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz. And how God brought about from their family this wonderful plan of salvation that we understand as Christmas. But we join Ruth also in proclaiming that your people will be my people. And your God will be my God. That's what we proclaim when we celebrate that the Messiah has come. We're proclaiming that God has kept his promises. That he has not forgotten about us. That he is going to redeem a people. That he is going to serve as our kinsman redeemer. And uniting us, his bride, to him, the groom. But decades before Boaz and Ruth meet out in the field, in the book of Joshua, we see two Israelite spies go to the border of Canaan. Because they're going to scout things out a little bit as they were getting ready to go and take the land for God's people. The spies find themselves in the home of a Canaanite woman, not a Jew, a Canaanite woman named Rahab, who was a prostitute and now has come to faith in the one true God, who is the God of Israel. So here are these spies going into the scene to scope it out before they have a conquest and they find themselves hiding in an apartment or condo uh, that's, that, where a prostitute named Rahab lives. So she begs them as a fellow believer now in the name of the Lord to save her family when the conquest comes of Jericho. The men promise and make a deal that if she protects them and doesn't sell them out and tell others that they're spies and they're there, then they'll protect her family. Pretty good deal. So what happens is everyone makes good on their promise. Rahab stays in the land of Israel, and she eventually gets married to a noble man who fears God. And the two of them, Rahab the prostitute, the Canaanite, marries this man, and they have a son. You know what his name is? Boaz. And not a random name they picked out in a baby book, but the Boaz of the story of Ruth. Rachel Stark says, in asking God to reward Ruth, Boaz embodies the reward that God has given his own mother, one that wouldn't terminate with him nor with Ruth, but would continue through both of them to their grandson David and their greatest descendant, Jesus. What's happening here? Now, we don't want to read too much into the Bible. It's not our job to read into it. It's our job to take it and present it and see what it actually says. But it's not too far of a stretch to imagine that here Boaz 
and going to rescue Ruth and give kindness and grace to Ruth. Maybe he was remembering the stories that his mom told him about how the spies, rather than selling her out, how they were kind to her. And how as a result of that, that she met someone and they got married, and even though she was a prostitute, that he received her and was kind to her and how God would bring about a child. And here is that child now as a grown man named Boaz, able to do something in its own way, similar to Ruth and rescuing and being kind to her. But we're told in that story that there is a descendant that comes from there. We've got to go to the book of Matthew to understand the book of Ruth as Ruth comes to a conclusion. In the book of Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, we see the first, it's really the first 16 words summarize the entire Bible so far. So you want a summary of the scriptures from Genesis to Matthew chapter 1. It happens in the first verse where we see this. An account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, who's the son of David and the son of Abraham. So Matthew's about to trace back the lineage of Jesus all the way back to the beginning to validate and show that Jesus himself, the Messiah who has come, is eligible to be the one who rules on the throne of David forever. So there's a lot of names, not going to read through all of them, but in verse 5 we see this. He's just going through names of the lineage. Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab. Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth. Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered King David. Then it skips down some more, more names, father of, father of. And in verse 16, and Jacob fathered Joseph, as in the Joseph who goes on people's mantle in a nativity scene. The husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David until the exile to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the exile of Babylon until the Messiah, 14 generations. And I love this next verse. The birth of Jesus, yeah, it came about this way. Like here is what actually happened. So we see here evidence that throughout generations that God has been working out his sovereign plan, even from the most likely, most unlikely sources to bring about the redemption of his people in Christ. Verse 20, but after he had considered these things, he being Joseph, being told about Mary, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David. That's an important detail. Get ready to tell Joseph, here is your lineage. This is not an accident. This is not a mistake. This is your role in this process of what God is about to do for the whole world. He says, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. And when you find out that she, you know, now all of a sudden is pregnant and you're engaged and it's not from you, obviously you're going to be a little concerned. She says, don't be, don't be afraid. Because what he, what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And here's what's going to happen. She's going to give birth to a son. And you're going to name him Jesus. Why? Because the whole point from the beginning is he will save his people from their sins. That in the story of Ruth to Rahab and keep going backwards, we see the love of God unfolding to that will lead to Jesus who will come to die for the sins of God's people. I think Acts 14 is really important to understand Ruth. 
We see this in past generations, he allowed him being, he being God, all the nations to go their own way. There was no king, everyone did was right in their own eyes. Although, he did not leave himself without a witness. He was still doing something in every generation, even if it felt like he wasn't. So what were those people doing as witnesses in those generations? They were being faithful to God, not worshiping multiple gods, and they were pointing people towards the coming of the one day promised Messiah. So here we are today in a different generation. There's several generations present here today, and there is every week here, which I'm very thankful for. But in this kind of current generation of all of us, the multiple generations who are here, we are people who God did not leave in this era without a witness. And what is that witness, and who does it belong to? It belongs to all of us who know Jesus. And we're not proclaiming that the Messiah is going to be coming one day. We are proclaiming that he has already come. That God's promises have been answered yes in him. And we're also proclaiming that one day he will come again to redeem a people and be united to his groom once and for all. What an amazing story. We get to be part of this as witnesses in a time where people are still doing whatever seems right in their own eyes. There's some things that Ruth shows us about God's heart for his people. It's important to know that God has a big, massive, compassionate heart towards his people. And the first thing is that God cares for the hopeless. I mean, here is Ruth. Lost her husband. She has no food. She's taking a big risk by leaving her family behind in Moab and saying, I'm going to side with the one true God, with Naomi's God. I'm going to go back to this land. And here's someone really in dire straits. Hopeless. And God cares for her. This story is not in the Bible by accident to show us God's sovereignty and to show us God's heart, that he is the great promise keeper for his glory and for his people. And the reality is that apart from Jesus, everyone in this room was spiritually hopeless. We're told we were dead in our sins. And Christmas is the story of God caring for the hopeless. That an announcement will be made that in the city of David, that a savior will be born who was Christ the Lord. That all the world would hopefully come to know that one day. God cares for the hopeless. God also includes the marginalized. In this story, it's Gentiles and women from this era of history. Gentiles who were oftentimes thought to be not included in the promises of God, they certainly were. Uh, here is Rahab, who was a Canaanite, and then we see Ruth, who was a Moabite, and they're included in the genealogy of the Messiah who had come to save God's people. That what the society views as marginalized, God has a deep heart for those people. And the reality is, if you read the scriptures, what Jesus, how he viewed and what he did for women was revolutionary at that time. There's a book I'd love for you to read. Uh, it's by Rebecca McLaughlin. And uh, she is up in Cambridge, Massachusetts. She's actually from England originally. And it's called Jesus Through the Eyes of Women. Jesus Through the Eyes of Women. And it talks about how revolutionary Christ's actions and thoughts and treatment towards women was at this time in the first century, and how it was so foreign to any way women had ever been treated before. So next time the Bible tells you that, maybe the, the, people tell you the Bible is anti-women or uh, you know, dis, is discriminatory towards women or anything like that, we need to make sure that we're clear that the opposite of that is true. 
that God always includes the marginalized. And in this story, in this era at this time, it was certainly Gentiles and it was women. And the third thing, and it, this is going to sound simple, but it's supposed to be, and that is that God's in charge. It doesn't mean we know every answer. It doesn't mean we always have the answer to why things happen the way they do. But that he is in charge of all of history. But the God who created the universe also oversees your very life and the details of it. And this story begins with Israel having no king. And it ends at the very end of Ruth with the name of David. God's king for God's people by which the ultimate another king would come who would reign forever. See, Boaz, again, foreshadows Christ, who is the ultimate kinsman redeemer, who will redeem a bride for himself, who is the church, all of us who know Jesus, that through Rahab and through Ruth, that he would come. I mean, what a story of God's grace and God's providence and God's sovereignty. Now, there's two takeaways that I want to leave you with from this series. It's two things. There's two things, I should say. The first one is a certain hope. Those of you who know the Lord have a certain hope in the promises of God. And what's different in a certain hope and like a basic hope? So a basic hope is like fingers crossed, you know, I hope it snows at Christmas, I hope I get into that grad school, hope I get that job, hope my kid passes their test, you know, those kind of ideas. You're just kind of hoping, kind of throwing it out there, you know, like, gosh, I really hope this happens kind of idea. Hope there's no drama at Thanksgiving, you know, that, that, that kind of, hope you beat the Gators, I mean, like that kind of idea. A certain hope means that you are resting your beliefs and your, all that you are in the reality of what has been verified. So we hope for the future coming of Christ, not with our fingers crossed, but because Jesus rose from the grave. Because the empty tomb exists, because Jesus' body is not there, it shows us once and for all that we can have a certain hope in the promises of God. That what he told, what, he, what Ruth was promised, what came through Boaz, what goes back to Rahab, even further before that, was all God working out this hope to be certain for us. We're told in the scriptures that every promise of God is yes in Jesus Christ. We are to have a certain hope as God's people. I say regularly around Easter time that Easter is simply just declaring that Christmas worked. And not even just that, his plan all along before that. That there is a real place called eternity where real people go. And the second thing is amazement. That I would hope that this story leaves you, that we've talked about for the last three weeks, leaves you amazed at the glory of God. Like amazed at what he can do. Amazed at what he is doing, what he has done. Amazed at his power and his sovereignty and his love and his grace. And that it leaves you amazed that he has not forgotten about somebody like you and someone like me. He has not forgotten about us. It's the hopeless that he brings hope. It's the marginalized that he in invades their lives and says, they might not be with you, but I am with you. It's the amazement that should come from our lives as a result of who God is. See, so oftentimes the story of the Bible's uh, the Bible stories are kind of presented as just sort of moral stories. Uh, most of the times I hear people talk about Ruth and Boaz, it's kind of presented as a love story in the Bible. That's not what this book is. Is there a love story? Sure. But that's not the point of this story. If there is a love story in this book, it's a story of God's love for his people. 
that that's the story of God's relentless outworking of history in love for us. You might say, well, but how do I make sense of the bad things that are happening in this world? Well, we're a broken world in desperate need of God's love. A broken world. And for Christians who are living in this broken world, and as a result experience things such as death and sickness and pain and violence and abuse, it's not to say that we shouldn't deeply want to remove those things you know, from our lives and from society, but even more than that, we look to a world that is to come. We recognize this world is not our home. We realize that God hasn't forgotten about us. And we also realize that, God, that those that have gone before us really actually are living their best lives right now in heaven with Jesus. That they're actually getting to see and experience all the promises of God. Well, there is no brokenness. There is no pain. There is no trauma. There is God and his glory and his sovereign rule of history reigning forever and ever. And we get to be known by him. The creator of the universe who orchestrated all this for Ruth and Boaz all the way to Jesus is the same one who knows you by name. The same one who used Rahab, a prostitute, is the same one who saved a sinner like you and a sinner like me. So rather than going, wow, how crazy that God would do that with a prostitute, no, the proper response is how crazy he would do that for me, for me, and for you. Let's be with people who are amazed at the goodness and the glory and the power of God. And I'll admit it's hard to do that when you're distracted by everything else. There's so many other things to be like a lesser level amazed by, you know, coming at us all the time. It's easy to go, yay, amazed by God, okay, sing the song, go home. Like, but it's the scriptures, it's the scriptures. They're going to help us see beyond that and help us see the great God for who he truly is and what he's really done. So I would hope that as Thanksgiving comes in this kind of grateful posture we're supposed to find ourselves in, as Christmas has come, they've kind of, kind of been married together, I guess, they kind of now flow together, that our response to it all is amazement. Amazement to the goodness and the grace and the glory of God ultimately understood in Jesus Christ. So the book of Ruth hopefully leaves us with a certain hope that God is working right now and also with an amazement that he is with me and has not forgotten about me and he never ever will. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for the scriptures. We're thankful for Old Testament books like Ruth to study, and I ask that this book won't just be information for us or knowledge of a Bible story, but will lead us to amazement of you and worship of you, the God of second chances, the God who forgives, the God who redeems, the God who has not forgotten his people. So we're thankful that you still love the world that you gave your only son. And the story of Boaz rescuing Ruth is one that points us to your rescue of us, the greatest rescue we ever needed. So we rescued spiritually, to be rescued from ourselves, to be rescued from sin's penalty. We're thankful that Jesus took that on for us. And that now we are made right with you because of it. Let us have a certain hope and amazement of the one who rose from the grave and is coming again. We thank you for all this in his great name. Amen. Let's stand together. Let's sing some good news.